time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. I don't know about you, but I would not consider it a happy accident if I was suddenly lured onto a stand-up comedy stage to try and tell jokes, only to have myself kind of die on stage. What would you do after that? Well, if you're like Corey, you would start practicing and getting better at it. But that's not the only thing that Corey is about. He is a very popular speaker, uh, talking to people around the world. But Corey is also an accomplished interviewer. This is Corey Poirier, who has accomplished something that I haven't talked to anybody else who's done this. He's interviewed over 5,000 high achievers in the business world. And so along the way, he started noticing that there were some similarities. Those similarities apply to all of us if we want to be more effective, if we want to achieve more in life. This isn't just about business, but how we do that in life. So today, Corey Poirier and I talk about the top five pieces of information that he saw as the consistency. We're going to do that in the top five reverse order. So if you're interested in what are the common traits of those high achievers, the top five, I'll tell you the last one is vitamin P, and we'll get to that and explain that. Listen in as I have a chance to interview Corey as we talk about what high achievers do differently than other people. Corey, I know you're uh, at a busy point in life, so um, I just want to talk with you for a few minutes. And so here's where is always a good place for us to start when we're talking about how you understand thriving and what you've learned about thriving is how you got to here. So could you tell us a little bit about your, kind of your story of how you got to this place? Yeah, uh, as we all say, as, uh, as speakers, as hosts, that's a dangerous question because there's so many directions probably that it took. Uh, and, you know, and I don't want to eat up all their time just talking about my path. But what I will say is probably the shortest explanation of the journey is that I, um, I actually grew up in a small town and I was raised by a single mother. I always add that because I really do believe that sort of helped me start my journey. Uh, and, it, you know, she taught me so many life lessons that I might not have learned otherwise. But where it went from there is my mother was a uh, a good communicator. Now, I, my mom knows I'm, I talk about her a lot of the time, so I'll say she was a good communicator in the sending point of view. I'm not, I can't speak for if she was that great at receiving because uh, she loves to talk. But I think even though I'm an introvert, it made me comfortable speaking in front of people. And so where my life really sort of, I guess, took off and, and helped me get to where I'm at today is I ha- had a happy accident where I landed on a stand-up comedy stage and uh, reluctantly jumped on the stage and started telling jokes and it went uh, horribly, but I kept going back. And then that actually transitioned into what I do today and what I love doing today, which is speaking in front of audiences. And so I say about the stand up and all that stuff is because I was that guy that was terrified of getting on a stage, sweat coming down the whole works. And what happened was that night, at first night I did comedy, even though I bombed, I didn't die. And I think there's a side of us that psychologically somehow we think we're going to die up on that stage which is why there's, um, I know there's a, a show right now, I think it's on Crave TV, or it's on one of the channels, it's called I'm Dying Up Here, and it's a stand-up comedy, it's about stand-up comics in the 70s. And we call it that in comedy, we call it dying. Oh, I died on stage. So even if people hear comics say that, they're like, oh my God, did he really die? Well, he's still talking, so he couldn't have. But I just think there's a psychological part that we think 
what's our worst fear? And they say actually the worst fear above death is public speaking. So what's our worst fear that we're going to die on that stage? And so again, this sounds so small, but big. I didn't die that night in the stage. So that opened up the possibilities. It allowed me to get outside my comfort zone and embrace what I really was meant to do, I believe, which is get in front of audiences on stages and communicate with them. You know, what's interesting, you talk about how we talk about dying on stage. So when my, in my youth, I was a, a magician and I did a lot of comedy for that. And so, you know, there's sometimes you, you're like, you know, this is going to be funny and it, it's, it dies, you know, <laughs> and there's no reaction. The interesting thing is we talk about dying on stage. We also talk about killing it on stage. <laughs> so it's interesting. We use those metaphors. Either we're dying on stage or we're killing the audience. So I, I'm not sure which one is, is more dangerous. <laughs> so uh, I love that bombed, but didn't die. And I find it interesting. You say it's a happy accident. You ended up on a stand-up stage and yet it didn't go well. So um, you were in learning mode when you were doing that. that yeah. That- and it's funny. I will say, Lee, I call it a happy accident and at some point I'm probably going to have to change that terminology for one reason is I'm working with an author right now. We're working on a documentary. One of his key insights that he shares is the power of synchronicities. And so he talks about meaningful coincidences, which are, and I should always explain that or mysterious coincidences, which really he's saying aren't coincidences at all. So I got to stop saying happy accident because it wasn't really an accident. Uh, The happy part was because it worked out to help me find my passion but really it was that it was a synchronicity. I know now that I was meant to get tricked onto that stage. I know all the stuff was meant to conspire for me to be who I am today. But I, of course, I'm speaking from the time zone of being on that stage. At the time, it seemed like a happy accident. Like it was an accident, but it turned out good. But really, I know now it was one of the dots. Steve Jobs used to did his talk where he called it joining up your dots, uh, the unofficial title of his Stanford commencement address. And really that was one of my dots. Without that happening, in my opinion, nothing else of who I am today probably would have happened, or at least it would have had to happen a different way. So just to add one piece to that, you, there are other people that could have been tricked on onto that stage, however that happened, and regretted that for the rest of their life, been upset about it for the rest of their life, never taken anything positive from it. So there is the other piece where you say, okay, you know, what's my role in getting up there and, and making not, not just the option or the opportunity, but the outcome was partly because of you that just set the stage for it, which is an interesting stage to set. And for me to ask about these 5,000 high achievers that you've interviewed, what, what led to that? How did you get to that place? So, yeah, it's funny because that had nothing really, okay, I'll, I'll correct that. Yeah, I guess I can say it. it had little to do with the stand-up comedy night. And I can say this for a reason. I started my interviews I had this little tiny newspaper in a small town where I grew up when I was about 18, 19, that age range. The stand-up comedy didn't happen until my mid to late 20s. So previous to that, I had this newspaper for a year. And what I, with the newspaper publication, slash publication, I went out and interviewed people. Now, I interviewed them one-on-one, and then I wrote an article about them or an interview with them for this publication. So that's when I started interviewing people, and I really liked it a lot. But I actually uh, moved away from it. So I moved into the corporate world, moved across the country, ended up working in, the, in a sales division of a Fortune 500 company, and then a Global 1000 company. And so I took a totally different path away from the paper. But after I launched my speaking career, and after I went, went full time at it, and I think it was 2006, I realized that I never closed the door on that publication properly for my liking. And so I recircled back, and I launched a similar publication. 
in which I was interviewing people again. And so to answer the question, that's what happened is I, I just really said, I need to have full closure on this. And because of that, again, another synchronicity, I'm going to call it, I started interviewing people again. The second time around, I, I dug it even more and I started becoming obsessed by it. And so what happened was I interviewed people every month for this publication. Then I launched a book series called Conversations With, and there were five books in the series, about a hundred people profiled in each one. And so I continued it with that. And then when I made the transition from the printed publication to online radio and then eventually podcasting, I just stayed obsessed with interviewing. And so sometimes people are like, how 5,000, how's that number even possible? Because it seems so, when you add the numbers, if I was just doing an interview a day, I don't know what that, what would that take, like eight years or something? Uh, so, but the thing people don't realize is that there were a lot of days back then I was doing 10 to 12 interviews a day. The paper, uh, it was big. So we needed like, if it was 40 pages that month, then we needed probably 70 page, or sorry, 70 articles or interviews. Because it was like a half, it went, a half a page would be an article. They were short articles. And so I had to do 70, 60, 70, 80 interviews every month at least. And by the way, the publication ran monthly for five and a half years. So when you crunch those numbers alone, what's that, 4,000? Um, and then the reason it's, you know, we kept track of it once it got over a certain number. But the reason it's not even more than it is, is because some of those months I would hire freelancers if I was doing traveling and that. Or uh, some months I just didn't do 80. So that's where the numbers came in. And then the book series I mentioned, that added another 500. So in my podcast slash um, video interview slash uh, online radio uh, history, I'd say the numbers are probably about 2,000. And then the rest was from that past world. So just to, I, I only give that context, Lee, because sometimes I think people are like, is he making this up? Um, but it was such an amazing experience. And I mean, I can dive into it further if you want in terms of, like, that's why I did it. I was, became obsessed with it. But I can dive further into um, whatever area you want, like things that I've learned during those interviews, what I, you know, maybe some habits or traits that some of these high achievers have, but whatever direction you want to go. Yeah, so, uh, th I'm curious about one piece before we get to that, uh, because there's, this is an internal piece for you. When you start those interviews, you're just doing interviews, right? You're, you're trying to, you're creating content for something else. And at some point, um, if you're uh, like most people who are doing that, you suddenly go, wait, I keep hearing these similarities. At what point did you start saying, oh, speaking of the, connecting the dots, at what point did you see the dots and start to see that there were similarities that cut across maybe 90 or more percent of those people? So one of the great things and this is always was important to me, but all of the interviews are documented. So it's important for two reasons. If one, if a person ever questioned the number, I have, I have the proof. I mean, I still got all those newspapers, like literally stacked. Um, Cause we, we only went digital the last year and a half. So I still have the old school printed paper. And, uh, and it sounds like ancient when I talk about printed paper, but that, that place where I was based doing it, there's people running newspapers that are still thriving, like, and specialty newspapers that are doing multiple six figures a year. So, I mean, I could have stayed doing that. It's just that it wasn't the right direction for me. Mm -hmm. um, but to answer your question, here's where it happened. I had a client say, can you come in and talk about the common traits? And so what I did was I started going back through the interviews, the printed. This was when it was just printed. Going back through the printed interviews and looking for them. And once I looked for them, to your point, I didn't notice them as I was going. I mean, you know, I'd hear somebody say, oh, finding your purpose. And then, I would, you know, I'd hear that over and over. And, of course, I would recognize that that was big. But it wasn't until I went back through the publication that I saw all these things jumping out. And what so were that's the first ones when you when that client came along and you what were the first ones that you identified? 
Well, and here's the interesting part. They haven't changed a whole lot. Like, so it probably no surprise because I was up to probably almost 3,000 by then. Mm-hmm. So it's probably no surprise that once you get an extra 2,000, they're still similar. There's a few that have changed just because of modern times, you know, like things will change over three or four years about technology. But um, here's, so if I were looking at some of the top ones, uh, I'll go reverse engineer this because I don't want to give away the, the, the top one first because then it, people are like, oh, I already got the top one. Um, so if I think about some of the big ones, one is that, uh, and this is a, a phrase I think was coined by Michael E. Gerber from the E-Myth, uh, but they were working on their business. So they weren't working in their business. And so for somebody that maybe hasn't heard those terms before, it means they were, let's say, finding customers rather than spending all day doing admin and accounting. So they were working on the business more than in their business. And some of them still had to work in their business, depending on the st- how big they were, and others would hire those accountants or what have you. Uh, but tying into the same one, but still separate, was that they hired for their weaknesses. So, and by the way, the cool part is, even when I was interviewing the solopreneurs, they can still hire for their weakness without having an employee, any employees, which is another thing that's, by the way, changed to a large degree in the last four or five years, because you can now use services, freelancers. There's so many options now, like an Upwork or uh, 95 Designs or any of those things. As an entrepreneur, you can actually reach out and have freelancers working for you. So that would be hiring for your weaknesses. So for example, I'm terrible at um, uh, graphic design, anything to do with design or production. And so I bring people in for that. And in fact, I'm working on a documentary now, and all I'm doing is capturing the interviews, but I, there's the team that's going to then tackle them and edit it. I don't know how to do that stuff. So people ask me questions, oh, are you using the lightning? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just doing what I know. I, I can look through a camera and know that our lighting is good. But beyond that, I can't tell you why they tell me to do this at the start of an interview. Something to do with flow. I don't know. But I don't know if that makes sense, Lee, but I found that they hire for those things that they're not good at. So those are two. And I mean, I, I'd like to keep going through them, but I don't want to, uh, you know, stop. I don't want to stop you from maybe inserting a question or anything you might have on those two. So, it, I mean, I, I think those are important and this is important across the board. Let, let's go back to this hired for, for weaknesses. This isn't just about people who are having a high achieving company. Um, you're probably familiar with a gay Hendrix idea of the genius zone. You know, that's the, that one area at the top. And that's what you're really talking about. You know, a lot of times we spend our time doing things that we have no business doing, taking up all of our time, all of our thought processes and adding a lot of frustration to life. And, and that's true. You know, at one time, so in my life, um, I can mow the grass. I know how to mow the grass. I'm capable of doing it. I despise doing it. And I talk with people who love doing it. So I hire a guy who loves doing it. <laughs> you know, that's, it's not that I can't do it as much as why would I do that and devote the time when I could devote that time to things that are much more in that higher level. Um, so what you're talking about is people who realize that they could, instead of trying to figure out how to improve all their weaknesses, work on what their strength is. And all the research these days so, shows that if we always work on our weaknesses, we're just limping along on everything rather than you know, firing full cylinder on the top one. So um, I think that the danger is someone going, oh, that's just about business. This is about everything. So yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, maybe I'll add two to what you just said, too, yeah. Lee, is that uh, we get somebody into um, get rid of our snow. You know, we're in a part of Canada where there's a ton of snow. I used to go out in the yard and my girlfriend with me and we'd go out and shovel the yard. And I, it was good exercise and I didn't mind doing it. But here's where my problem was. It always seemed to snow when I had a whole bunch of meetings to get to. And 
like not travel to the meetings. I mean, like actually on the call or Zoom or whatever. And now all of a sudden I'm trying to shovel it the snow in a hurry, probably even not doing it in a healthy way to get into the call and I'm not preparing for the call and all that kind of stuff. And so we started hiring somebody to do the snow, but then even it goes, even extends as far as a daycare. So our son, we thought he's not even two yet. We thought it'd be good for him to have the experience of other children around, but there was a, a, a hidden agenda too, which is that I wasn't getting as much work done when I work from home. I mean, I'm on the road all the time, but when I am home, and her as well. She's going, uh, she uh, started going into coaching. So the two of us couldn't get as much work done. Or even by the way, sounds crazy, but it even gives us me time and us time. So if, if I, we decide to take a Friday off together, the baby's not with us because he's with us all the other time. So I, I wanted to say, I don't what you said that. Yeah, I've, I've done the same thing. I've, I've done it. I fought it long enough. You know, for, I fought it for years, even though, by the way, I was learning this stuff, I was still resisting it going, I can do it better. I can do it quicker. And there's a point where, again, you clue in that I can't get as much done trying to do these things that somebody else loves doing the snow blowing the guy that does it he has a plow it's not i don't know if he loves doing it or not but that's how he makes his living All right like yeah. in other words he probably enjoys it like it's just really he's in the plow he's not out doing it by hand and he probably digs it but even if he doesn't that's how he makes his living so we're actually giving somebody else helping them have a living and same with the daycare worker yeah. but not only that we're giving our son access to other children rather than just being home with us so hey, yeah. anyway yes it's Got not just support. yeah Okay, let's keep going down that list a little bit. Let's see what else we can dig out for people to use. For sure. So this one is one of the ones I said has changed a little bit when I said some have changed. But the way it's changed, or say, the message hasn't really changed about what it is, but it's just the, the way it's impacted us and, and to the extent it's impacted us has changed from four or five years ago, which is uh, related to distractions. So the high achievers say no to everything that doesn't move the needle so they can say yes to the few things that do. But what I'll add into that is now that even includes their phone. So what I mean by that is when they're, let's say, uh, going to a meeting or they're going somewhere else, they don't stop to check their phone, get distracted, take themselves out of their genius zone. They actually go, I'm going to go all in with this person or this thing right now so I can go all in with the phone later. So it's, it's just the way they do it. So you could say it's the power of focus or the I call it the power of no. But what I'm getting at, and this is, by the way, the one, if somebody asks me, what's the one out of these five I'm about to share, because I have two more um, that could get, change the game, it's being able to figure out what a no is, a real no, and then being able to say no at the right times. Most people never do that. And I can tell you 90% of the high achievers, including billionaires we've had in the show, do that in spades. That's an interesting one. I mean, so you put it as the knowing what a no is, um, but I would take it one step back further and saying understanding what's distracting you. Mm. That gets you to the no. You know, you, you mentioned the yeah. phone and everybody's going, you know, reaching for their pocket, you know, going, oh, let's, let's make sure that's still there. Um, so it's easy for us to live in a very distracted culture right now, not recognizing that um, that's exactly what others who benefit from our distraction want to have happen. And we just walk right into it. So the identifying the distractions has to happen before you can say, no, I don't want to do that. As time goes on, then there are those opportunities that constantly come up that you then have to say no to. That's That one to me is an incredibly important one. It's, it's about focus, but it's also a step back of going, what's keeping me from that focus? Yeah. And I will say, and I know we don't have enough time today, but uh, I will say that I actually even teach strategies for that, meaning because the biggest thing is I have a whole strategy around how I determine what a no is. And, and so actually being able to spot a no from a second away. And then the second part is how do you say no in a way that you don't hurt the person's feelings? And then the third part is 
which is all tied into it is taking action and actually saying no, because I grew up in a small town where saying no was like, Oh, just say yes to everything and figure out how to do it. And I was taught that saying no is a bad thing. And then all of a sudden I start studying these high achievers and I'm saying they're saying no to everything. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, and, and I even starting to, and all of a sudden at first, because I was taught not to say no, whenever a high achiever would say no to an interview, I'd be insulted almost. And then all of a sudden I started respecting it because I started understanding that if, you know, if you were able to pick up the phone and call, call Tony Robbins and say, Hey bud, what's up? Tony Robbins wouldn't be able to serve millions of people a year. Done. Just like that. Game over. Because all he'd be, he'd spend all day on the phone with people saying, hey, Tony, what's up? So in his case, he probably has 100 people saying no for him. He has a whole staff that, you, you know, and, and I say this, I mean, there's the people that are actually meant to say no, but there's people you run into at a conference, let's say, and they're volunteering for Tony's team. And they're like, he, somebody says to them, hey, uh, can you just get this message to Tony? And whether they say no to you directly or they just don't give it to him. They're still saying no. So he has a whole stream of people designed to say no. And by the way, this becomes important if you're a person that can't say no, because there's some people, and I, I won't name them, but there's some thought leaders I know that will say yes to everybody that gets access to them. So what the company does is designs the system so nobody gets access to them. Because otherwise, they just say yes to everything. Yeah. And because it's in their nature to say yes. So I was grew up, it was in my nature, and I still struggle with this one. Because I'm a meat and potatoes guys. So people, I have uh, programs where the idea behind the program is for it to be on autopilot so that I can be out making magic elsewhere. But if somebody comes to me and says, Corey, uh, you know, I'm trying to get my TEDx, but I'm struggling with the application. It needs to be in tomorrow. Can you help? If I can drop stuff, meaning like if there's nothing that's going to impact, I'm, a, I'm on the yes train right away. Now, granted they're a client, but most people in my sphere would have a support team saying, no, I'm sorry. That's not our, you know, part of our thing is that you have to do it on your own. It's self-paced learning. But mine, I go and we're, you know, we're still doing live Q and A's, online Q and A's that people that signed up four years ago, what paid a one-time fee are still jumping on the live Q and A's that I'm still spending every month administering once a month. So my point is I have a hard time saying no. I just, I just work hard to say it for the right things. So Corey, now I'm writing down that I need to join that program so that I can, you know, sneak my stuff in with you. <laughs> I know it's, it's stuff bad. Away. <laughs> but you know what I will say, uh, that's how you get, I've only had one client in five, almost years running two programs like that, that asked for a refund. Hmm. And we have testimonials. Like I know I can't say everyone, but we have hundreds of students and I feel confident. I go out to at least 60% of them and ask for a testimonial and have it within a day or two. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, as you know, that's a big number. When I say 60, people are like, why not 100%? But I'm saying like to ask them to have it and turn around right away. There's other ones that would say yes and just not get it to me in time. And then there's other ones that would say yes, but it would take a while. But my point is, is that that wouldn't happen if I said no. So here's the, here's the catch-22. I have a hard time saying no to my students, but at the same time, they're making bigger impacts in people's lives because I'm saying yes. So... It's just, it is what it is. And, and that's part of the, the mission thing. You know, when you, you realize that some of those yeses that probably pull, pull from other place still fit into your mission, that's when it, it gets to be a little more tricky. I would love to hear more about how to spot a no, but I also want to hear the other two traits. So you know what? Yeah. I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you the Reader's Digest 30 second version. That'd be perfect. Because you just hit the nail on the head. Because I'm that person too. I don't like somebody hearing and going, Oh, what, I got to buy a book to hear this or something? So, uh, and I'm not that person. I just try to also be conscious of my time too, like for our show to make sure that uh, we get as much out as we can. Having said that, here's the short version. You hit the nail on the head. You gave me a segue for it, the word mission. So I defined my mission. So I have a mission statement, we'll call it, like a company has for me personally. And so here's my mission statement. 
Now, if somebody's listening, rewind and take notes if you can't catch up with me quick because I do talk fast. So my, my five-part mission statement is to be the guy who motivates, donates, inspires, educates, and entertains. How does that connect to my no? If somebody asks me to do something and it doesn't touch on any of those, it's the quickest no in the history of no's that's ever been uttered. If they touch on three or four of those, or three, let's say, then it becomes a, ooh, I should look closer at this. And if it's a four or five, it's the easiest yes with no regrets I'll ever, I'll ever decide. That's how I decide. There's also how I say no and all that, but at least that gives people a frame. If you can figure out what your mission is, and I think everybody should have a mission statement, write your mission statement out, and then test whatever somebody's asking you against, is it serving my mission statement and the people I'm serving? That's a beautiful thing because the no always starts from already knowing what you stand for, already having that mission in place. It's you're not scrambling trying to go, oh, how does this fit in? You have a template, those five pieces. Yes, no, 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 no. I'm done. Yes. Yeah, right. Perfect. Thank you. That was awesome. Reader's Digest. Yes. Coolio, do you want me to dive into number, I guess it'd be two if I'm working backwards? Yeah, you're, yeah. so let's go to number two. I was thinking two. doing three, but I, I ended up doing five. So uh, the second one, this one won't surprise some of your listeners, and they're already doing it. Even being here today, showing up today, they're doing it. And I'll term it this way, lifelong learners are leaders. Mm-hmm. So what do I mean by that? And why do I say learners? We used to say readers are leaders. Here's the problem with that, Lee. What are they reading? Right. You know, and I, I used to joke and say, you know, if you're reading Fifty Shades of Grey, you might be learning something, but you're not maybe learning the right stuff, like for, for success, let's say. Um, and then so, but I mean, I used to joke and say Harry Potter and, and Fifty Shades of Grey, but, and Harry Potter, I mean, you, you know, kids though, like Harry Potter turned people onto reading like nobody's business. So maybe it was the gateway. Then you can give them a book report if they're your, their parent and say, I want you to read Think and Grow Rich and I'll pay you 20 bucks to give me a report on it. But you wouldn't have been able to do that without Harry Potter because they would never read a page. So, but my point of this whole thing is that it's not about reading. First of all, it's about what you're reading. But here's the other thing. The reason I got away from saying readers are leaders or leaders are readers, get rid of all that terminology for one reason. It's because today you don't have to read anymore. So this is why I say this is a good example. Even five, six years ago, whenever I was uh, noting the common traits, it was mostly people saying, here's the books I read. Now, here's the podcast I listen to. Here's the shows I watch. Here's the magazines like Success Magazine I buy. And so the point is now you can listen to audiobooks, never read a book in your life, and still have a university education from some of the top minds in the world. So that's why I say leaders are readers. Or sorry, learners are leaders. It's because it's not about the, the content itself. It's about how you get the content. It's really about the state of mind, you know, a willingness to expand, a willingness to learn new things and an unwillingness to decide that you've got it all, that, that there's something that you've already captured that can't be improved upon. And, and I, that to me, that inflexibility is, Carol Dwight calls it the fixed mindset. Um, you know, when you get to that place, you're, you're stuck as opposed to the growth mindset where you're constantly capable of taking in new things. I, I write books, but I hate reading. Um, I love books themselves. I, my dyslexia gets in my way. So I, but audio books, man, I'm happy with those online courses, happy with those struggle through a book. So I'm glad you've changed it from the reading part. <laughs> and you know what, Lee, what's interesting about the world we're in today is we don't talk about this ever. And I don't know that it needs to be talked about, but the fact that for so many people that either for whatever the myriad of reasons, don't like reading books, uh, struggle with reading books, whatever the reason is, we don't, we don't acknowledge it much, but how great is it that audiobooks exist for all those people now? And by the way, on average, when I ask people, are you a reader? I would say 50% now tell me audiobooks. It used to be like 80% written books. So I wonder, were those people listening to audiobooks 
books, just not reading anything? Or were they forcing themselves to read a book and now they've moved over to audio? Whatever the answer is, what I can tell you is audiobooks were a game changer for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. It's a great way of taking information and it demonstrates that open, expanding place. Okay, so let's get that last one in and then we're going to shut this down. So the last one, I, I actually, I think I hinted, I think hinted, sorry, I'll correct that. I believe I hinted to it earlier, which was the idea of pr- purpose and passion. Mm-hmm. So I call it vitamin P. When people say, what vitamins do you take? I say, well, the first one I take is vitamin P, but here's the problem. You can't take it in store. You can't buy it in stores. You probably can't afford it. It's priceless. But if you can take it, there's no other vitamin that's stronger. And so obviously I'm alluding to the idea that purpose and passion, that's the vitamin P. Uh, so why do I say that? Um, and this is, by the way, that not just the most common trait, by probably an extra 15% above the second one. I just gave you them in order. It's probably 15 or 20. So if, if uh, you know, if the number was 70% uh, was for learners or leaders out of the people I interviewed, then 85% is the people that have found their purpose. It's, it's very rare, in fact, that I've seen a person that has achieved both high-level success and also are fulfilled in their life that hasn't discovered and or isn't living on purpose. Now, you'll notice I dangled, dangled between the words. Passion to me is what you do, the actual act of what you're doing, like performing stand-up comedy. Purpose is why you're doing it, which is to get people out of their grind of the day and come and escape at your comedy club. So when I say this, a lot of people would argue with me and say passion isn't that important anymore. And in fact, on my show, it used to be called Conversations with Passion, and people would fight me on it and say, you know, passion is it sucks and just were mad about the idea of passion because they were feeling that, People were be feeling like that if they didn't discover a passion, they were feeling like a failure. So I get why people were kicking back. Interestingly, interestingly though, for two years before that, everybody loved the word passion. It just mm-hmm. took this switch. So that's why I started going to purpose because I think purpose is bigger. It's your actual calling and passion. Your passion could change every week, but your purpose might change and alter a little bit, but it doesn't change overall. Like it's if your mission is to help people become happier, chances are you'll just find a different way to do it, which would be the passion. So, but the bottom line is, what's the common trait is that these people are living on purpose. They've taken the time, however, came to them to discover their purpose. And that's a whole nother dialogue is whether or not it's already inside of us, whether you discover it, what have you, but either way, know that the people that are living on purpose are the ones that rise to the top. And I'm not a shill trying to get somebody to buy a book. What I will tell you is the book I'm going to mention, you can't even buy right now. Uh, but my book, I just brought it over to uh, Morgan James Publishing. So it's in between right now. And that book is called The Book of Why and How. And what I'm just sharing right now about finding your purpose, I basically reveal everything I've learned about it during all these interviews in that book, which I just found out the release date as of now is going to be March 17th. But the book was already out as a self-published book. That's why I'm talking about it like it exists. But that being said, if you follow my work, I do share these hints all the time about it. But Lee, hopefully that helps. That's number five is living on purpose. Okay. So how do they follow your work, Corey? How can people keep track of you? So the best way is two, there's two answers to this. One, if they just want to go to the hub, so just, you know, the main source, uh, I would say go to thatspeakerguy.com. So thatspeakerguy.com. Thatspeakerguy.com. Yeah. And then the other option is if they want to learn more about, we didn't talk about it much, but they want to learn more about the work I do in speaking, helping people land their TEDx talk, all that kind of stuff. Actually, if you want to get a free sample of that, I'll go one step further. Go to thebookofpublicspeaking.com thebookofpublicspeaking.com. And any of your listeners that go there, uh, they can sign up and get a free copy of that book. And it's not a short book. It's like a hundred and some page real deal book. Uh, Interviews with the likes of Tom Ziegler, Judy Carter, who wrote the Comedy Bible, talking about the speaking business. And then insights from some of the people in our program sharing what they love about speaking. Uh, So people can go grab that book and they'll learn more about me that way. And then if they're interested in my program, they can reach out after that. 
Perfect. Thank you, Corey, for sharing so much in such a short amount of time. Thank you so much, Lee. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. listening to the Thrivology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thrivology.com or at thrivologymagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T H R I V E O L O G Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Uh-huh.